Thanks. Uh, so uh, one more announcement. So next Saturday here at Calvary, there's going to be a production uh, from Obria, which is the ministry to uh, pregnant women. Yeah, um, it's going to be a production here at Calvary, the 6th at 6.30 to 9. It's going to be a live play called Viable. And Obria is one of the missions uh, that we support in the community. Um, they reach out to uh, women with unexpected pregnancies or unwanted pregnancies and encourage women to keep their babies. It's a free event, uh, but we do recommend that you make reservations. Uh, Information is in your bulletin. Uh, there's a push in the state to uh, outlaw these types of uh, clinics that actually help women uh, make the right decision to keep their babies. So if you can come here and support, it's free. Uh, they're going to ask you to donate, so expect that. It's a missionary effort. So next Saturday, 6 o'clock, 6.30 here at Calvary. What? Yeah, yeah, this coming Saturday, the 6th. So be here, enjoy it, support Obria. Thank you. Jim, it's all yours. I would also like to thank those who were here yesterday for the spring cleanup. The whole church has benefited from that. So thank you, all you hard workers who showed up for that. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, as we look back again to your word, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and our guide, and that we realize as we look into this word, our, our thinking, our theology is going to be challenged, but we welcome that because we want a God who is true and not a God of our own imagination. We want to worship a God who is great, not one that we can conform to our image. So challenge us, help us to be deep thinkers, help us to embrace truth where we find it, help us to check out carefully whether the things that we are hearing from this pulpit are true and according to, the, according to your word, and when we find that to be so, we invite you by your spirit to change us, that, and we worship you in a way that is more honoring and fitting, more acknowledgement of who you are, your greatness, and your love for us. And now, Lord, by your spirit, give us listening hearts and willing lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen. So there's a program, I don't actually watch all the movies and TV shows that I quote up here, and this is one of them. It's a program called Celebrity Rehab with Dr. Drew. Have you seen that? So it's a television reality show, and it's chronicling uh, the the addiction that celebrities have and then their re rehab by uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky in his, in his uh, Pasadena Recovery Center. According to the New York Times, um, Dr. Drew was alarmed by all the tabloid portrayals that uh, the lifestyle of the rich and famous included addictions. And so he came up with a proposal for this television series which would authentically depict addiction and intervention. And the people, there, the celebrities are invited and they're offered the treatment for free which normally runs $50,000 to $60,000 and then they get payment every week depending on whether they stick with it um, to, as an incentive to stay. I think most of us have heard of interventions. Some of us have been part of an intervention. We've participated in one. It's, it's an important event usually created by a family of someone who is addicted either to drugs or alcohol and it's uh, supposed to help that person realize, one, that they have a problem, and two, that they need help, and three, to remind them that they have support in this healing process. But it's not always like it's depicted on television. The, 
the reality shows are sometimes, can you believe it, not all that realistic. Um, their interventions can be phenomenally successful. In fact, um, when it's done right, it's, uh, the, the statistics are that about 90% are successful in at least convincing the person that they have a problem and they need to get treatment. And whether or not they're, they get over it or not is something else. Now, <clears throat> I've been involved in several interventions, so I've, I've witnessed many of them in my ministry career. But I get invited not because I have any drug or ministry or uh, counseling experience, because I'm not really a very good counselor. I know nothing about drug recovery. But I get invited because I'm a pastor. And if you invite the pastor, the implication is that you're inviting God to be part of the intervention process, which really is the pointed question before us today. What happens when God intervenes? What happens when God gets involved? See, that's really the question of today's message and the text before us today. So I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 9, verse 17. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, if you've been following along in our study of Romans, um, you, it should be no surprise that we have bumped into this doctrine of election over and over again as Paul is expressing the fact that God chooses some people for salvation. And that's a reoccurring thing throughout the chapters of this epistle. But especially in the first three, Paul reminds us that all men, without exception, are guilty before God. All of us are, are, have violated God's standard of righteousness, and we are all, without exception, deserving God's just condemnation. He starts with the Gentiles. They are guilty because they have rejected that which God has revealed of himself concerning um, his, 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 point, his place in creation. And instead of worshiping God, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. They worship man-made images, images of their own likeness, of their own imagination. And so this is the important part. In judgment, God gives them over to the natural consequence of their sins. Then he goes on to say the Jews are also guilty. In fact, the Jews may also be more guilty than the Gentiles because they have the law. Not only do they have the law revealed by God, but they're teaching the law to others. And even though they have the law and teach the law, they, yet, they don't live up to the law. They're happy to judge other people by the law, but if the law was to judge them, they would fail by their own standards. And so consequently, Paul is saying both Jews and Gentiles are guilty and they are under divine condemnation. Now when we get to the last chapter, the last part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, Paul begins to describe this great salvation which God has provided for us. It is a salvation apart from works. It is a salvation based solely on God's grace. It's a salvation that comes to us through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit and not by any work that we perform. And so the benefits that we derive from Christ's death are provided for us by grace, uh, through faith, and not on our own merits. And that anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ then becomes a legitimate son of Abraham because those who come to God by faith are saved the same way Abraham was saved by believing in God's promise. Excuse me. <coughs> And because God is sovereign, because God is ruling, 
his purposes will be fulfilled. They, they cannot fail because he is almighty. His purposes must be fulfilled. And not only does, does his purpose show itself fulfilled in saving us from eternity past, but also in keeping us secure in his love. And so we're reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. We're now at the end of chapter 8. And that God will keep us for his good purposes. So now we're in Romans chapter 9. Paul begins Romans chapter 9 by expressing his great love for his own people, the Jews, and his tremendous grief that he has over their unbelief. And he expresses his willingness that he would even come under the, the condemnation of God, the, the anathema of God, if, in order that his own people might be saved. And we're in uh, chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. We get to verse 6. Um, Paul begins again pointing out this doctrine of election as he has explained before. And this doctrine of election helps Paul to explain to us this um, reason why Israel, m most of Israel, is not saved. Because he says not all who are Israel are Israel. Not all who were naturally born from the seed of Abraham are the Israel of faith, the faith of Abraham. But there's always... A remnant. There's always some who are saved out of those who are rejected. And so now we've moved to the broad discussion of, of Israel in general, how some of them are saved because they're the true Israel through some very specific examples. He talks about how um, God chose Isaac, but he rejects Ishmael, and then how God loves Jacob, but he hates Esau. Those two um, examples of not all who are born of Abraham have Abraham's faith. Um, in our text before us today, beginning in verse 17, Paul's going to express this same point further as he gives us the example of those who are saved, like Moses, and those who are rejected, like Pharaoh. Um, he raises two questions in the process, and these really are the questions that we need to keep asking ourselves as we go through the text before us today. The two questions have to do with God's sovereignty and the working out of divine election. The first question is in verse 14, and we were here last week, and what shall, or excuse me, two weeks ago. What shall we say then? Is there, is, there is no injustice in God, is there? Or depending on your version, what shall we say then? Is there an injustice in God? Is God wrong in doing what he does in electing some? And the second question that we're going to focus on is in verse 19. Um, you will say to me then, why does he find fault? For who will resist his will? So our text centers around those two questions, and they both stem from Paul's preaching on God's sovereignty and God's choosing, God's election. So the premise in both cases is the same, and that is that God chooses some to save, while others he chooses not to. Uh, Romans chapter 9, beginning of verse, let's back up to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy 
on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You'll say to me then, so why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Well, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. Now, before Paul gets into his matter in verse 17 about this divine condemnation, he wants to uh, reiterate this election process. And so in verse 16, he says, so it doesn't depend on the, on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. So it doesn't depend on what man wants, what, what man desires, or how man performs. Um, it depends only on God's mercy. Um, divine election in no way really impugns the righteousness of God. That's a, a, a wrong inference. It's an incorrect uh, implication of what Paul's been teaching here. Uh, the implication that a lot of people want to uh, come to is that God is unfair or that God does not have the right to make choices of some without offering an equal choice um, to all. But here Paul wants us to understand quite clearly that God's choice does not depend on us, on our will or on our performance. In fact, it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us at all. It, de it depends on God. So Paul now moves beyond what he says in verse 16, and he's specifying that election is not determined by our will, not determined by our works. It's, it's, it's done because God chooses to do so. And this is really a very glorious, uh, freeing truth, that, that salvation is dependent not on what we do, not on what we want to do, not on our ongoing performance. Our salvation is determined by God's good choice. And then we talked to this about this two weeks ago from John's gospel. Many people will say, well, it does depend on our choice because you look at John 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. But the very next verse, like we pointed out, says, who were born not of blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. So we have this divine choice, election, which is God's work. It is entirely by his grace. It is not because God owes us the return on our investment. We are saved by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We are kept secure eternally by that very same grace. And for that reason, we should be exceedingly grateful for what God has done for us. But I think very few of us actually struggle with the concept, at least on the surface, that God chooses to save some. Because it's really obvious not everybody gets saved. And if you looked at your own life, you'd say, I was a derelict, and there's no reason that God would have to save me. So we don't really have a problem with the fact that God chooses to save some. The problem that we normally have is it comes down to this. If God chooses to save some, others are not chosen to, to be saved, doesn't that mean necessarily that he chose 
not to save them? Are they chosen not to be saved? And this is getting a little tangled up here. If God chooses to save some, does it mean that he's choosing not to save others? The reality is that nobody goes to hell because God arbitrarily determined from some time before that you're going to go to hell and there's nothing you can do about it because you're predestined to damnation. That's not what the Bible teaches us. In fact, we looked back at Romans chapter 1 to 3, we discovered that all men are rejected. All men are guilty. All men have rebelled against God. All men deserve God's just condemnation. So we're okay with the concept of God choosing to save some out of this massive of catastrophe. We're all right with that, but we have a big problem with the idea that he chooses to not save someone. Because doesn't that at least imply double predestination? Would a loving God do that? Would he, would he determine ahead of time that this one is going to be created for damnation and there's really nothing you can do about it? No matter how desperately you want to be saved, sorry, you're not in the club. You weren't chosen. Are, we, are there some predestined to be saved and some predestined to not be? Are they chosen for damnation? R.C. Sproul said, I'm frequently asked whether I believe in double predestination. If some of humanity is elect, then others are not elect. The non-elect are those who we call the reprobate. So unless we're universalists, that means everybody gets the same treatment, everybody gets saved or everybody doesn't get saved, Unless we're universalist, there's no way to avoid the idea of a double aspect to divine predestination. Of course, predestination is double. There is election and reprobation. We cannot avoid the fact with mental gymnastics. However, once we affirm double predestination, we have to ask what kind of double predestination do we affirm? One view, some, sometimes called hyper-Calvinism, it is this view in minds, particularly why I never refer to myself as a Calvinist, because this is what people think of Calvinism. One view uh, called hyper-Calvinism teaches a symmetrical view of predestination or equal ultimacy. A symmetrical view of double predestination holds that in the case of the elect, God decreed election from eternity past in the fullness of time, and he intervenes in their lives and creates saving faith in their hearts. God invades the soul of the elect and quickens them from spiritual death to spiritual life and brings them to faith in Christ. In a symmetrical manner, the reprobate are doomed from eternity, and God in the fullness of time intrudes into their lives and creates fresh evil in their souls, ensuring their ultimate reprobation and damnation. This symmetrical view believed that God works grace by direct intrusion, and he works hardening by creating evil in the reprobate in an equal manner. However, this is not the orthodox doctrine of double predestination, and I do not hold to the symmetrical view or equal ultimacy. I hold to a positive-negative view of double predestination. A positive-negative distinction in predestination is this. In the case of the elect, God positively intervenes in their life to rescue them from their corrupt condition. The Holy Spirit changes their hearts of stone to hearts alive to the things of God. That's his positive intervention. 
In the case of the reprobate, God works negatively insofar as that he passes over them. He leaves them to their own devices, but he does not intrude in their lives to create fresh evil. In the mass of fallen humanity, some receive the saving grace of God. God intervenes to rescue them from their sinful condition. He passes over the remainder. Those whom he passes over are not elect. They are reprobate. They are judged because of the evil already present in them. Let's look at an example, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So remember previously in the Jacob narrative, God shows his mercy as a, as a gift and is not as, as a duty. It's not owed to him. And so Paul says that God's interaction with Pharaoh now is, has a purpose to display his power and his name. Now that particular aspect is something we have not ex been exposed to about God before, before the Pharaoh in incident here. That is, the purpose is for him to display his power and his name. So Egypt has this ruler who enslaves the Israelites, and then God repeatedly tells Pharaoh through Moses to let my people go, and Pharaoh repeatedly refuses. And each time that Pharaoh re refuses, God rebukes him through one of these plagues, and each time he ratchets it up a notch. And so the first part of the plagues or judgments, lesser judgments, or, you know, there's frogs and gnats and flies, and they're there to warn Pharaoh, they're to, to show Pharaoh as who's really ultimately in charge and who has power here. So we know the story, Pharaoh does not relent, and so God visits Egypt with more and more potent plagues, each designed to show Egypt that the things they worship, the gods they worship, the powers they worship, are really impotent relative to God's unlimited ultimate power. And since God, we're told, raises up Pharaoh for this very purpose, a lot of people will claim that God treated Pharaoh unfairly, that uh, here's this nice guy that um, God just decides he's going to be mean to and, and abuse. So we have this, this abusing of, of the poor, innocent Pharaoh that God treated unfairly. But Paul defends this initially by saying that, so God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardened whomever he wills. And it's true because we know that the Scripture specifically says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God made him spiritually insensitive. So we have to ask ourselves, is that just? Is that fair of God? Now, yeah, Pharaoh rejects God's word, but is it fair for God to make Pharaoh hardened and then judge him because of that? Well, if you look back at the story, beginning in Exodus 7, 15 times we are told that Pharaoh hardened his heart, that he would not listen to God. 15 times. It's not until you get to the end of chapter 9 where the first time we hear that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What was happening here? Pharaoh hardens his heart repeatedly against God until the point where God says, I've had enough. I'm turning you over to your own devices. I'm giving you the consequence of your sin. Isn't that what we talked about in Romans 1 through 3? That the judgments of God is to give us over to our sin. That is his judgment. 
He doesn't cause us to sin, but he judges us by turning us over to it, by, by giving us over to our own depravity and our obstinacy. So it's true that God hardens Pharaoh's heart, but ultimately he does so because Pharaoh has already hardened his heart to God. As John Stott says that God's hardening is a judicial act abandoning him to his own stubbornness. Leon Morris observed, God never hardened anyone who had not first hardened himself. And again, that sounds very much like what we studied in Romans chapter 1, where God's punishing the unjust by giving them over to their own depravity. No one compelled Pharaoh to sin. He acted according to his own nature. He acted according to his own patterns. But God hardens his heart after Pharaoh has already hardened his heart himself against God. So when God hardens the unbeliever, he hardens him by handing him over to his own sin and then confirming it in him. And in this case, we're actually told why that happens in, in Pharaoh's case, because it serves God's purpose. In this case here, God raises Pharaoh up and seats him in a position of the most powerful man on earth. And he puts him in this uh, place where he rules over not only Egypt, but he rules over all of Israel. God puts him in this place of power for the purpose, we are told, of showing his own power. Verse 17, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So this great power is invested in Pharaoh. It's invested there by God, who is omnipotent. And Pharaoh is perceived to be the most powerful being on the earth, a, 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 a demigod. And here God says, I appointed you for this very position not to show your power on the earth, but to show that the great power you have is impotent compared to the unlimited power of God. And so he specifically says that my people, that the world may behold my power. Think about that from the Israelites' point of view. They, they couldn't have been more powerless compared to Pharaoh's great power. They're not just subjects, they are slaves. And they witness through these plagues and the ultimate deliverance that God is the ultimate power, not Pharaoh. Verse 19. You'll say to me then, so why does he find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Now, it stands to reason that since God created, and we are the creature, since God was the one who made us, he does, in fact, have the right to make us anything he wants to make us. We, if it's about the right we're talking about, not what follows, but if it's about the right, it stands to reason he does have the right. He has the right to choose to make whatever he wants to. He could have made you a horse. He could have made you a cat. He could have not made you at all. He has that choice. He's the creator. So we're talking about rights. We get to the question, which is really the bottom line for all of us through this, what right does God have to do what the Scripture says that he does? And Paul's first answer is he's the creator. He can do, he can create whatever he wants. Now, the reality is this truth brings many Christians 
and almost every non-Christian brings their blood to boil because what right does God have to just treat men in such a cavalier way? Who does he think he is? What right does God have to uh, save some and condemn others? And again, we're talking about right here. What right does he have? Well, the same people who would protest saying that God does not have that right are the same people who demand to have that right for themselves. They don't want God to be God. They want to be like God, but they don't want God to be like God. Perfect case in point. You know, we just mentioned it earlier about this Obria dinner that's coming up Saturday. The, the pro-choice movement comprised of women who insist that they have the right to decide without any outside influence, without any intervention, the fate of the child within their womb. They believe that they created the child and it is therefore theirs to do with as they wish. They can dispose of the child, they can keep the child as they wish. They don't call the child clay like God is calling all of you. They call the child the tissue of human conception. And they believe that they have the, the right the sovereign choice to do with what they want with the tissue that they have created. And isn't it an amazing thing that they are condemning in God the very same things that they are demanding of themselves. They demand to have the right, the sovereign choice, to choose for themselves what happens to the object in their womb. But we deny that God should have that same right. I'm a little off track. Verse 22. <laughs> what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to, make his, and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which is prepared, prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Okay, the assumed problem here, the straw man argument is that God makes vessels for the purpose of destroying them. That's not what the text says, but that's the argument. The argument is, why would God create something just for the reason of destroying it? But if you read our text in its context, you should be able to answer this, that a text without a context is a pretext. If you read this in its context, you discover that these problems disappear because we've been talking about this. Humans sin freely, frequently, inexcusably. Most Jews and Gentiles continually spurn the grace of God. Uh, chapter 10, verse 21, all day long I held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So Paul does not assert that God has the right to create sinful beings in order to punish them. He's saying that God has the right to deal with sinful beings according to his good pleasure. See the difference there? He's not saying that God creates sinful beings just so he can destroy them. He's saying that he has the right to punish sinful beings whatever way he, he, he chooses to do so. The, he, the, the punishment is his manifest displeasure of God against sin or to display the riches of his grace. 
this argument that God creates to destroy hinges on another concept here, also not found in the text, that God is the agent who makes these uh, vessels prepared for destruction. The text doesn't specifically say that God made the vessels prepared for destruction. It could be God in the text, or it could be man. And of course, we know that both of those things are true. We know from Jesus talking about vessels prepared for destruction that, that we make ourselves fit vessels prepared for destruction in that we serve other gods and that we live for luxury. That's Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, uh, Luke 12, verse 13. And it is also true that God prepares destruction for those vessels. So both things are true, that, that we prepare ourselves for destruction and God prepares us for destruction. But now let me pick up this point in order to bridge this point with the next one, a question about evangelism. And the question specifically is that uh, we'd have to ask ourselves, what is the ultimate point, purpose, goal of evangelism? We all know what evangelism is. Evangelism is telling other people about Jesus. Or if you want to fill that out a little bit, evangelism is the proclamation of good news of salvation through Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, so that those who hear may respond in faith and then join with other believers in the fellowship of the church and then continue to grow in Christ as his disciples. That's a fuller explanation of what evangelism is. You know that. But the question is, what is the ultimate goal of evangelism? Is it merely to get people saved? The ultimate goal of evangelism is not salvation. The ultimate goal of evangelism is the glory of God. The reason for everything in history, in life, in creation, in our own existence, the reason for all of those things is the glory of God. The first question in the Westminster Shorter Catechism of Faith is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, anyone? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the goal of life is not winning the most number of people to Christ. The goal of life is the glory of God. And that is also the chief end of evangelism. So let's ask it as a question. What is the chief end of evangelism? And the answer would be the chief end of evangelism is to glorify God. Now, in the case of evangelism, that happens in two ways. So the grace of God, the mercy of God, God is glorified through the portrayal of his mercy and his grace, his love and his patience and acceptance through the saving of those who are saved. But those who are not saved also bring glory to God. They bring glory to God through God's display of his justice, his power, his holiness, and his honor. So in either case, those who are saved and those who are lost ultimately serve the one purpose of bringing glory to God. So on the one hand, God is making his mercy known through the saving of some, like in the example of Moses in our text before us today, and God is making his power known, the text specifically says that, 
through the latter ca case of Pharaoh and many others who, who re reject and rebel God. So God passes over. He chooses to save some. But those that he passes over are not innocent. He judges no one. He condemns no one who is innocent. He condemns sinners. And God has that right to save or not save who he chooses. And now we've come to the essence of the question. Does God have the right to do what he does? And that's what we've been considering all along. Does he have that right or not? In 1734, Jonathan Edwards wrote a sermon called The Justice of God and the Damnation of Sinners. So this is a more modern version because he wrote it before the Revolutionary War. But this is essentially what he says. If God should reject and destroy you, would that not be appropriate considering how you've behaved towards both God and others? If God should forever cast you off, it would be exactly agreeable to your treatment of him. Examine how you've treated God. He's talking to unbelievers, not to the church. Um, you don't stand up very well under the, such direct examination. To begin with, you have not shown any particular affection or love towards God. When people are in love, they think of the loved one constantly. They want to be with that person. They're always thinking what they can do for the object of their love. But you have not done that. You don't think very often of God. In fact, you think of him hardly at all, except to blame him when things don't go exactly as you would like. You don't want to be with God. Again, you have slighted God in thousands of ways throughout your entire life. Everything you are and have comes from God, but you have not been thankful for it, nor have you made any serious effort to find out why God has given you the abilities, advantages, and opportunities you have been given. You have used those things for yourself, trying to accumulate as much money, pleasure, or praise as possible without any thought of him. Why should God pay attention to you in any saving way when you are negligent of his bountiful gifts and favors? You have also refused to hear God's call to you, even though they have come to you many times and in a variety of ways. You've heard the gospel preached. You've read the good news. You possess a Bible. You have even seen dramatic telling of the gospel story. Has God never spoken to you, calling you from sin to Christ by these means? Have you never felt in your heart moved, your will challenged by these truths? Some, in some parts of the world, have not received these calls. But you have. You have received them again and again, and still you turn a deaf ear to God's direction. Will you not hear him? Why should he hear you? even if you should cry out to him in grief and desperation at the last day. Yet God's purpose is not solely to condemn. The demonstration of his power and justice in judging sinners is true part of what God is doing in human history, but it's not the whole thing. God is also making known the riches of his glory in the salvation of some. Why should you not be among those who are saved? particularly since you are hearing these very truths proclaimed. The chief end of God is the glory of God. It is not the saving of all men. Therefore, since God is, is all-powerful, he is sovereign, he's omnipotent, by very definition, he has what he wants. He will not be deprived of anything he desires. It will be achieved in every detail of, of, of history. Every person 
who has ever lived or will ever live must glorify God, either actively or passively, either willingly or unwillingly, either in heaven or in hell. You will glorify God. Either you will glorify God as an object of his mercy and his glory, which has been seen in you, or you will glorify God in your rebellion and unbelief and being made the object of his wrath in the final judgment. God's blessings are promised to any sinner who will receive them through grace by faith. God's wrath is promised to whoever rejects his grace. Man is eternally condemned not just because God has not chosen them, but more importantly because we have not chosen him. We make our choice, and we're responsible for that choice. God doesn't cause us to sin. He doesn't cause us to, to reject him. We, we choose to sin by our own volition. No one can say, the devil made me do it, in apologies to Flip Wilson. The devil doesn't make you sin. You do because you want to. And neither does God make us sin. We're told in uh, James chapter 1, Maybe verse 13. Anyway, that God doesn't cause us to, God doesn't lead us to sin. I can't get started on it. Anyway, you know, when all the other explanations are set aside, God is God, and therefore he can, he can do as he chooses. He can, he can choose to, cre to create some for glory, and he can choose to condemn others for his own purposes, to suit his own purposes. Again, some Christians think that God is glorified only by the salvation of sinners, and that's just simply not the case. God is equally glorified through the condemnation of sinners, and that's what our text is showing, is that Moses and Israel are uh, bringing glory to God through deliverance. Pharaoh is bringing glory to God through his obstinate rebellion. God, so Pharaoh's heart is hardened in resistance of, uh, against God, and then God ultimately hardens Pharaoh's heart in judgment. But the point is, that all creation ultimately glorifies God. So the ultimate question here is not whether God will receive glory. The ultimate question is whether he will be glorified by your salvation or by your condemnation. God has nothing to lose and everything to gain, and you have everything to lose or everything to gain. And one last thought. Since God is sovereign, what reason do we then have to evangelize? Why should we evangelize if God's going to choose whom he will and bypass others? You know, what's the point of evangelizing at all? The reason is twofold. One, because we are commanded to take the gospel to the very ends of the earth. And the other, the second reason is because that is the normal means that God has chosen through which others are saved by one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. So what happens then when we evangelize? Then God intervenes. And what happens when God intervenes? Because when God is sovereign, he causes his will to happen. And we can be confident that when God intervenes, when we evangelize, that some will be saved. And they will be saved to everlasting life, and they will be saved to, to, to a, a, a changed life. 
and that is because that God is ultimately sovereign and it's guaranteed. In all things, God will be glorified. Let's pray. Again, Father, our purpose, our challenge, our commitment here today is not to persuade to a particular form of theology over another, but our challenge is that we want to be found to be biblical Christians, and we want to embrace truth, whether we can understand it or whether we prefer it. We certainly don't want to vote on what we decide to be true or create a God of our own imagination. When we are confronted with truth from your word, I pray that we embrace it, we accept it, and we grow from it. I pray, God, in the process of all of this, as we are growing and as our understanding of who our God is, his greatness, his sovereignty, that our response is to give you praise more fitting and more worthy of who you are because you are a great God an infinite God, far beyond our understanding and far beyond our preferences. Let us love you more and worship you more fittingly. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.